I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, Conversations on Catholic Faith and Culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. Episode 5, Freedom and Faith, the Conditions for a Culture of Beauty. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, We've talked a lot about some of the underlying ideas uh, relating to economics in particular. You related to to an area that I never really thought about all that much in conjunction with economics, which is culture. Uh, And you asked four fundamental questions that are gonna be the basis for our conversation today. One, what is culture? Two, why is it important? Three, what influences it? And four, how can we promote a culture of beauty? Let's start with the first question, um, and we're gonna focus on the first two in this episode, and then next week we'll do the next two. So, for starters, what is culture? Okay, so culture, it's one of those things that everyone knows what it is when they see it, but it's hard to define it. So that my stab at this is to say that culture is the pattern of behavior, the emergent pattern of behavior and activity and, and work uh, that we see uh, when we look at a society as a whole and it reflects the core priorities, beliefs and values of that society. And we can think of culture as applying to a nation, for example, um, and some would argue, and we'll get into this, that that's what holds a nation together, that's what defines it in many ways. Um, But also, we can think within that of many subdivisions. People naturally notice groupings of people. So you get phrases like youth culture, drug culture, some good, some bad, Um, and uh, even a culture of uh, skydivers, people who associate with each other. When you look at the way they interrelate, you can spot patterns, and that's what culture is. It's the work and activity that characterizes a group of people. Here in the Bay Area, we have food culture. We have, uh, there's, there's cafe culture. Can we speak intelligibly about a Christian culture? Is there a uniform sort of Christian culture that we can talk about? Um, yes, I think there ca- that we can. And in fact, that's one of the things that in many ways I've devoted my, a lot of my life to in the last 20 years or something is uh, preserving what we have of a Christian culture in the West um, and then also promoting it um, against what I perceive as the the steady encroachment of a secular culture. Um, And so uh, it doesn't mean, a Christian culture doesn't mean that everything um, is uh, overtly or obviously Christian um, in the way that we might think of it. So it's, it's not just high art and that we have statues of the Virgin Mary everywhere or something like that. Although in a, 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 in a culture that is uh, much more openly Christian, um, such as in Italy in the Middle Ages, you would have had statues and shrines uh, uh, just uh, dotted around the place much more obviously. Um, but really all our activity can reflect our, our worldviews, the way that we interrelate with, with each other. Even um, beauty in one sense is the radiance of love. Uh, it, it's, it is uh, manifested in uh, our 
work and our activity and our interrelations. Um, and so those values, of course, Christian values, um, some of them are not exclusively Christian, so that they're common to other cultures, mm. but some aspects of it are. And it's one of those things It's very often very difficult in art or something, in painting or sculpture, you can talk specifically about how style um, is reflected by a Christian worldview, and I talk about that. So even a landscape will reflect um, the, the, the understanding that the artist has when he paints a landscape, will reflect his understanding of what he's looking at. And the Christian worldview um, is very different from that of other religions or a secular worldview. And so it really can impact it. Um, but um, also just uh, in, uh, and that affects the style, um, but also in the things that we don't normally think of as high art, um, the, the pattern of behavior can be Christian. Um, and uh, we perceive this naturally, even if we can't characterize it. And I would say that um, nearly everybody is concerned about this. This is why the culture is such a, a battleground, actually. So much of what we see uh, in the political battles that are going on actually are about culture and the reason that it, it, it matters so much to us is that we perceive the values of the, the society around us and when they match our own or match something that we're drawn to and want to uh, participate in so it can influence us to change of course um, then we perceive it as beautiful and uh, Roger Scruton, who's the British philosopher, um, he wrote a book called How to Be a Conservative. And he talks about this a lot. And um, he has a wonderful phrase. He says that uh, when the culture is beautiful, we feel at home in the world. And I think that is true. Now, we have different perceptions of what is beautiful. We've talked about this in past podcasts. But when the culture reflects our own values, um, we are going to feel at home in the world. And so it matters. No one likes to feel alienated from the world around them. Mm. And uh, so what tends to happen is that either people conform uh, so that they start to adopt those values and it influences them, or they fight to change the culture so it reflects what they think. And so in the, the modern world, I would say that we have a battle between people who are seeking to preserve and propagate what you might call the culture in the US, for example, of Judeo-Christian values. Um, and uh, against that, you have people who are seeking to propagate a culture that reflects uh, um, secular values. Um, and actually, I would call it cultural Marxism. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a deliberate attempt, and this is done through the educational institutions, um, especially the, uh, the humanities, where the, the worldview has an impact on how you assess those subjects. Um, and this is why it really is important. Something else that uh, is interesting, I think, is that uh, in the political forum, a lot of Catholics, for example, and, and not just Catholics, uh, people of faith particularly, 
um, are fighting legal battles over uh, abortion and uh, the, whether or not it is right that it should exist. Now, as a Christian, I don't think it should be available. But um, the, the legal battle um, really comes at the end of what is... Uh, prior to that, there is a cultural battle. The, the reason that laws will even be changed or passed is they have to reflect some body of opinion, otherwise it won't change. <clears throat> and we talk naturally of the culture of death. We feel instinctively that this is the tip of an iceberg of a whole range of attitudes. Um, and so while I'm not against us fighting those political values, um, it's not something I get involved in strongly at a personal level. I'm very happy that others do. My focus is on the culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that the long-term uh, way of dealing with this and a more permanent way is to um, transform the culture and change people's attitudes in that way. What you're saying reminds me of a quote by uh, Andrew Breitbart, who talked about politics being downstream of culture, uh, meaning that people's opinions are usually not so much, you know, an analytical, rational view taken up by, you know, cost-benefit analysis, but it's more of an expression of what they see as being, you know, just sort of what they value. Maybe it's a mixture of aesthetic, it's, you know, sort of conforming to what's going on around them. Um, and I was also thinking, going back to, you know, what kind of culture do we see around us and what does it, what does it come from? I think about, uh, I wasn't around for it, but the, the kind of counterculture movement of the 1960s and 70s, you were alive for that. What, what is your sense of how the, the counterculture led into uh, the, the culture that you, you describe now, the secular culture? Yes, I, I mean, I was born in 62, so I, 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 um, I wasn't sort of analysing okay. it as I was now <laughs> at that point. I, I, I think of myself as a bright lad, but I wasn't that precocious. Um, but <clears throat> I, I, I'm pretty sure that there was a, um, a, an effort. Uh, the way that I, I've, my reading has uh, informed me, um, especially a book by someone from around here, David Horowitz, actually, who, who was a, um, a, a Marxist. He grew up as a, in a communist family in the US and used to go to communist camp every summer and then ran a, 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 mag a prominent magazine in Berkeley, I think, in the 60s. Um, and he said they, and, and then he changed. He's now a conservative and sort of a, a um, senior neoconservative uh, because he, in the end he rebelled against what he saw. But he talks about how there were deliberate strategies to destroy the status quo, uh, to change people's attitudes. Um, and. Uh, that worked its way through to the popular level. Um, and so even things like uh, something that I was interested in, rock music and, um, in the 70s, so this is when I was at high school, I was extremely interested in this. And the, the values of uh, rock music, largely sex and drugs and rock and roll, um, you know, I, they, they, in some way, it, it was glamorized and I was drawn to it. Um, and uh, it, it, it certainly altered my attitude. And it's interesting that when you, 
um, see people reacting against it. So it's quite common now to see black and white films of people in Alabama in the 50s saying that rock and roll is the music of the devil or something like that. I've seen these, uh, these old films. Um, now, um, people would laugh at that and make them a laughing stock. But then um, in the last 10 years, I saw a, a documentary on the BBC in which they were proudly proclaiming that the values of the 60s had been propagated by uh, the, the popular music of the day and how successful it had been. Um, now, I'm not dead against all pop music. I'm not one of those people who thinks that you know, everything before Bach, after Bach is, you know, is detrimental. Um, and I, you know, I'm embarrassed, you'd, I'd be embarrassed if you knew what I sing along to in the car, for example. But, um, and there can be good and bad in all fields. Uh, so I'm not universally slamming that, but uh, the, the very style of it, the, the, the way in which much of it is composed, never mind even the words, just the, the raunchiness of the music, for example, is deliberate. Yeah. And you can have dance music, which um, is in that genre and can be perfectly innocent and fun, and you can have it which is uh, certainly promoting the wrong sort of emotions and passions in people. And it's done deliberately. People know what they're doing. And anyone who points a finger at it and says this is wrong, it's very easy to dismiss them as being prudish. And generally that's what happens uh, because they're very quite often they're not sure precisely what they're reacting against. And it's very difficult to prove. But I think there's a lot to that. Okay, so if the counterculture was counter to some sort of culture, how would you describe what, what existed before that? Was there, is there a time that we can go back to in relatively recent history when the United States and uh, Great Britain, when kind of the major Western nations had a Christian culture? Well, um, this is a, one for the historians, and I'm not an expert on the United States especially, but the, what I would do is look at Western culture in general. Um, and I think I'd make a couple of remarks, and I will eventually work my way through to trying to answer your question. But first of all, it's commonly to, uh, suggested that Christian culture is just cultural imperialism. It's European culture, for example. Western culture, we, we, we refer to the West, and we think of Western European and then that sort of envelops the US, and this is then spreading across the whole world. And it is a, um, an imperialism that's associated with a particular place and time. Um, and the response I would make to that is that what is good in that culture is Christian, because they were Christian societies. Um, and for the most part, it's not imperialism. Um, people are choosing are attracted by it and choosing to follow it and they, that's what they, they did mm. um, and then also um, what characterizes it is not most powerfully Western Europe or England or France or whatever it is um, it's actually Christianity and Christianity is at root is not um, of course originally from Western Europe Christianity emanates from the Middle East and so it is at its heart an Eastern culture which migrated 
across the, um, the Mediterranean region and then into Western Europe mm. um, and at various times has waxed and waned. And it does reflect also local places and local times. But um, the things that people are reacting against in that is not Britishness or um, Frenchness, I don't think. It's Christianity. They're reacting against the universal aspects of it. Mm. Um, and so the, the, the culture will have been much more consistently Christian or Judeo-Christian um, 200 years ago. And uh, it's interesting that in his book, uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy, um, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, um, he, he says that by the beginning of the 19th century, the culture of faith and the wider culture had separated. So he's saying that at that point, um, you were beginning to see the effect of the Enlightenment, secular values, which of course began around the 17th century and these ideas steadily sort of moved into the West. You're starting to see that uh, take over. Um, and so no longer is it as Catholic as it had been in the Middle Ages or something like that. Um, now, the, still, it's largely Judeo-Christian, and I think you could say that about the Amer American culture. And then you get things flourishing. It's, it, it, the pattern is never very, it's always simple and easy to describe. You get pockets of things happening here and there, certain things flourishing in time. Um, but uh, I, what I would say is that um, the, the real break started to come around 1900 in, in the arts, where in architecture and music and art particularly, um, you had people who were deliberately trying to break down the old order and the old tradition um, very, very consciously. Um, and were not. you might argue that the Enlightenment period uh, was still interested in classical culture. Um, and so there's a large overlap with um, Christian culture as a result of that. Um, but once you get to the beginning of the 20th century especially, you start to get a, a very strong understanding on the part of the, the groundbreakers. So if you think of Picasso or um, in architecture, you have the Bauhaus movement, uh, people like um, Schoenberg in classical music, creating dissonant music, okay? Um, <clears throat> they knew that by um, going against the old traditions, they were speaking out against traditional society. Um, what is sad, I think, is that the Christians at the time um, didn't. <laughs> they, they thought to try and accommodate them, to try and uh, bring Christianize a, a secular culture and I think that that was a failed experiment um, and uh, so you start to get that it's happening in the high arts and in the universities uh, around 1900 say around that period but then it really aggressively took hold um, after the second world war and then began to spread even it accelerated again in the 60s and, and seemed to move into all areas um, but, but the reason that it could spread so easily is that the Christian culture wasn't really defending itself. It, it wasn't aware of what it was. It didn't, 
uh, it had never really had to fight. It had just been there. And so people had, hadn't really thought about it, I don't think. Um, and so what you're getting now is that people are analysing it and working out how we can do to them what they did to us, if I, if I can. Mm. Well, that's what I'm trying to do anyway. Yeah, so going back to the Enlightenment, uh, I've heard a story told about how uh, Christianity, in a, in a sense, uh, by demystifying certain aspects of the cosmos and, and telling a more sort of intelligible story of, of the origin of the universe and uh, that it leads into a worldview which allows for science and allows for the sort of scientific exploration of, of the natural world. Uh, and, so, and then it seems like that ends up sowing the seeds of the next step, which is to then be skeptical of, of uh, even the foundations that made this revolution in science possible. Uh, and that's that might be kind of a an aside, but it it sounds like there are a few inflection points maybe along the way from the 1700s and the French Revolution forward. There's kind of a steady encroachment of secular culture uh, until the point where secular culture is starting to to uh, put Christianity in its own ghetto or or uh, not allow for the Christian worldview that even made the secular worldview possible yes. uh, exist alongside it. Yes, I, I think that's true. And um, again, people are now starting to, to look at that. Um, my friend, uh, Dr. Michel Akkad, who, who you know, he is very interested in, in this. Um, um, we may well have him on one of these podcasts one day. I'm hoping mm -hmm. we might. Uh, but... Um, I think that um, one of the problems with this is, is exactly as you say, that it's, it's in a sense it forgot where it came from. Um, but part of that is that um, it, it wasn't seen by scientists, natural scientists, um, and scientists we use the modern phrase, um, how Christ, initially how Christianity could be helpful. Mm. Um, it, it was felt that it was a separate uh, field. And, and when, in many ways, it is one, one of the, um, you don't need to be a Christian to be a good scientist. Um, but the, uh, I think that ultimately, the, the the mistake is that people are beginning to realise is that having control over your environment in the end, it the the important thing that I feel is that. Christianity offers happiness to, um, and science doesn't. <laughs> and in the end, if I was to try and sort of deal with this, we can look at it philosophically, and there are many ways. So, for example, some would say that you can very easily see how natural science can be informed by um, an Aristotelian view and, and a Christian view of an, an end to which everything is directed. And that will actually help scientists to, to be scientists. Um, but uh, ultimately, the, the conceit was, that, uh, was this feeling that man didn't need God to be happy. He now had control of his environment. And I think that steadily people have started to realise that that isn't true. And in, in today's society, um, you get all sorts of 
alternative ways of people deriving happiness from life um, other than the one which is truly going to give them happiness which is Christianity um, and we don't need to be at all worried about science and um, there are many I mean I we don't need to go into it here but um, Christians as you say that's the foundation of uh, natural science there is no conflict there uh, but we haven't done very well at making that argument and more importantly attracting people to the argument if you like uh, making people understand why it is important that there is no conflict because um, there is greater beauty and greater happiness when all of these things work in harmony yeah so getting back to the question of kind of defining culture uh, there is a sense that maybe some people think that that we could impose culture from the top down that uh, there's uh, you know a, a way to create the as as the, the Marxists believed to create the new economic man who would uh, who would act for the good of the party and the good of yeah. of, the, of the whole society um, coming from some sort of centrally planned directive how does your view of what culture is go against that? Well, the, the answer to that actually is that it's possible to introduce a bad culture centrally um, because the, the culture of beauty emanates from love and for love you need freedom. And so there must be personal freedom. And you can't legislate people to act freely. So in other words, what you can do is regulate to protect freedoms and then inform, um, give, give information so that people can exercise that freedom well. Mm -hmm. But you can't force people to do it. And if you do, you can certainly influence, you can give information. Um, but if you try and do that, and that the, the um, you might argue that the um, Eastern European states, the communist states, mm -hmm. for example, um, prior to the, the fall of Soviet Russia, um, they all uh, successfully introduced um, a Marxist culture, centrally um, influenced, uh, but it was ugly, it was bad. Um, and you can do that because they're not worried about restricting freedom. But if we want a culture of beauty, mm. we must have faith and freedom mm. because these are the things that inform loving action. Um, and so the task is to evangelize and to create a society which is free okay i believe and um i th i think it might is it worth talking about emergence at this Please, point yeah. yes okay so this is an idea which um has interested me and i first read about it um in fact when i read a, a book by a nobel laureate physicist a nobel prize-winning physicist um, and what he was concerned about was the fact that um, quantum, if I've understood it, I, I it's funny enough, I studied physics at university, but um, it's, it, even at the university level, we're talking, this guy's at a level that's sort of st stratospheres ahead of me. Hmm. So if I've understood his book correctly, and he was trying to write a popular book, um, what he was saying was that um, it, it was called a different order. And what he was talking about is how at the 
um, atomic particle level, um, the behavior of those particles seemed to be different. It, 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 it didn't follow the normal laws of science, if you like, um, that are nevertheless observed at the macroscopic level um, when you put all those particles together. So a planet contains lots and lots of atoms and lots and lots of subatomic particles. And when you examine how the particles, the subatomic particles are behaving, mm. they don't obey the same order as they all do when they're in relationship with each other in a, in a, much, in a planet. And so he was using the phrase emergent order, that at a certain point, when these smaller things are in relation, um, you can observe a pattern, and that's classical physics. And the funny thing is that quantum physics, which is examining those particles, um, has not undermined classical physics in that sense. The, the, the laws of Newton, he was saying, are still hold pretty much. Mm. Uh, I mean, we've, we've modified them, we've improved them, um, but it's not radically altering them. Um, and yet we know that as you analyse and you get deeper and deeper, the assumption was always that at the, at the small level, you just get, the more you can see how they behave, the more you can just add up all the parts and you'll understand how the big one behaves. And what they're realising is that there's, there's a different order, the, 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 and that's the phrase he used, and that the order that we observe um, at the level that we perceive things as human beings naturally um, <clears throat> emerges when you have enough of these small particles in relation with each other. Now, the other thing that... Um, that struck me was when I was starting to delve a little bit into economics and um, there is this uh, in free market economics there is this apparent uh, contradiction it seems between the pattern of behavior of the individual person who is acting freely um, and random and, and mathematically that is random and then the idea that economics is a science, when you look at society as, as an economy, for example, there are laws which describe uh, how the economy works. Um, and how can you have that when at the individual level um, people act according to free will, which, which doesn't obey the same mathematics at least. And um, I noted that um, an Austrian economist called, who, who was both Austrian and part of the Austrian school, called Frederick Hayek, talked, I think he used the phrase spontaneous order. Um, and it was always thought paradoxical that um, at the level of the economy, you get laws and, it, and you can look at it scientifically, um, but at the level of the individual, um, you have um, free behavior. And so he was a great advocate of uh, freedom and, and also um, seemed to allow for the possibility of culture, effect, values affecting that, because that governs how we behave, how we use our freedom. Now, when you come to culture, I, I, I believe, so I was looking at these two ideas and saying, well, actually, that's what we perceive with a culture, that the pattern is there when we look at the, the grouping as a whole, um, and it's established by interrelationships between individuals. And, and it, a, a, a human person is a person because they are in relationship. That's what a person means. Um, and so um, the society 
is, is really defined by not just the vector sum of individual actions, but actually by the sum of individual actions and the relationships that exist between them. Hmm. And we perceive in some way, intuitively, naturally, those interrelationships, which are entities in themselves, are formed when two things interact. So in the context of love, the, the, the whole of this idea of persons relating comes from, first, people trying to work out in Christianity the three persons of the Trinity who are in relation. And we talk, and people sometimes characterize it as the, the lover, the beloved, and the love as three distinct entities. And um, St. Augustine talks about all, each of the persons of the Trinity um, are simultaneously lover, beloved, and loved. But if any of them are, might be thought of as one more than the other, the Father is the lover the Son is the Beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the love. And so in a culture of beauty, if, if I think of beauty as the radiance of that love, in other words, if there's something when we are able to apprehend loving action, work that results from the love that the artist has for those who um, are going to see what he does, um, when we are open to that, and it depends, you know, it does depend on our ability to apprehend it, we will, we will see it as beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the culture, therefore, um, is manifested only at the macroscopic level. But the culture of beauty is, um, in order, if we want that, we can't centrally control it. What we can do is simply create the, tradition, the conditions that allow people to act freely. So we can use persuasion and influence and inspire people to want to be Christian and to be loving and to act well. And we can, you can regulate to stop people interfering with the freedom of others. And that, so there is a place for a nation and a society and a state in this. Um, a, um, a, a society that is just does need laws. Um, but ultimately the, the goal is to protect personal freedom and so my argument is that the conditions that are going to allow a culture of beauty to flourish are the same um, that allow individuals to flourish as people in relation with others and also will allow a culture of beauty to emerge. Uh, when we talk about why why people care about culture so much you've touched on a lot of you know what what makes culture important um, but this, this sense that there's something wrong with it, uh, you point that uh, one, of the, one of the streams of secular culture, which you think is, can be labeled cultural Marxism, wants to eliminate all aspects of traditional Western culture. But and we also talked a little bit about the counterculture. Uh, I sense that maybe there's something a little bit more complicated going on with counterculture because it wasn't necessarily positioned entirely against uh, a Christian culture. By the 1950s, you said there had already been a pretty substantial erosion mm. of those values, and a lot of it was, was replaced in this vacuum by a sort of technocratic, um, you know, the, the, the idea, maybe some of it even came from, uh, from the, the influences of, of Marxism, but a kind of, uh, you know, the, the dominance of, of Corporate, well, and, and we're yes. going to get into this sort of you know mass production, a society where everything is decided by um, 
industrial processes that are far removed from our you know human capacity for for loving one another. Uh, is there something valid in that kind of critique, or will you also go to bat for uh, for the, the industrial production and <laughs> um, capitalism? As, I, I think there's a, I think there's a lot to it, and that, that's a great point actually. Um, so you would get the you know the great symbol of that culture I think is is the and how almost when people think of American imperialism they think of American culture dominating the world the great symbol of that is McDonald's every one and a half miles or something across China well, more often than that is it more often than that yeah. okay oh that's even great that's is that wonderful so I walk between Right. I can go in any direction, and I know that I'm going to hit a McDonald's in a certain... You can get to the next <laughs> one before you finish your first batch of chicken nuggets. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the muck culture uh, is is very much part of it, as perceived. And um, certainly, um, I'm no fan of a lot of the sort of industrial architecture that we see, especially since the Second World War. And I think... But what I would say is that I don't believe that that's intrinsic to capitalism or mass production or industrialization. I, I don't like what I see and I react against it in, in many ways. Um, in, in many ways, they're the same as the, the people who criticize it. And I think before we get into what, what I think the answer is, um, it's worth noting there's a lot of people who are traditional Catholics that I come across in the world that that I occupy um, and are very concerned about a culture of beauty. For them, it is much about um, capitalist culture, if you like, as it is uh, Marxist culture. And they see themselves as pitted, pitched against both. Now, I, 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 I see that, uh, but I would say that the, um, the, the sort of capitalism that produces that um, on the whole, is what what might be called crony capitalism. It's not it's not free, um, and so if we can have a genuine freedom, um, capitalism in itself does not mitigate against it. Nor does mass production. Nor does industrialization. And it's one of the things we, we can talk about next time. But you you can just look at history, and see there have been periods when there's been a lot of commerce, for example. And the money that was made from it has produced Venice, something that's very beautiful. Um, you can look at periods where there have been factories that are um, now listed buildings. You can look at periods where the things that those factories produced are now sought after antiques. Um, so it doesn't have to be bad. Um, the, um, it, it, it's not just about the regulation. Freedom, of course, to be true freedom, uh, must be informed by what is good. We must have a, a sense of the end to which to use it. And so faith does that uh, to a large degree, but it does mean looking at the... Uh, you can teach people about beauty. So someone who designs a factory, if they don't know, they could have, you could have all the values that I'm talking about, and if they don't understand how to design that in accord with the beauty of the cosmos, mm -hmm. which is something that is... Um, discerned by analysing the cosmos and then replicating it in a factory and it can be done and it has been done in the past um, it's not going to happen 
So you need all of these things in place. And education has a part of it, certainly in the creators. It seems like technocracy in particular, the idea of a rationally planned, technologically managed society has embedded in it utilitarian values that would make it harder to put beauty as a priority in designing something like a factory. And then if you consider housing to be just another need for a society in the same way that textiles or, uh, or other mass-produced goods are, then why not build the house also in that same utilitarian sense? Where it's all about maximizing the, you know, the, the the airflow or you know getting the yes. cheapest materials to house the most people or something like that. Well, th those are certain pressures, but um, I I, th I think as we said elsewhere that I think that's a reduced sense of utility. That um, in the end, if you look at mass housing, for example, um, that. Uh, the, the housing projects since the Second World War in our inner cities, um, they may have um, had a utility in that sense, they may have done their job, uh, but because they ignored the whole aspect of man, in other words, his spiritual needs, um, and that what didn't come into it and wasn't considered part of utility, uh, part of what is useful and good about a building, um, that they... Uh, they actually uh, produce buildings that people don't want to live in and that, and that seem to destroy community. Um, now, the, the, you can have build, buildings that are beautiful but not useful in other ways. Or, or, so, uh, and in the end, uh, that, that's no good either. And once we, there is a, a, a word for that. They used to make um, buildings in uh, stately homes in England uh, that were modelled on Greek temples uh, but they had no purpose other than to be a building in the landscape and they were just there in order to, to mimic um, an idyllic scene which they'd seen in a painting with this mm. Greek temple uh, sitting in the field um, and very often it would be at the wrong scale because everything had to follow this painting when you got up to it it was too small um, and they called these things follies. And there's something unsettling. And although superficially there's some beauty to it, when, um, the, when it, it really doesn't have a utility um, in any way, then it undermines the true beauty of it. And we, we sense that. We feel uneasy in some way. Um, so all of these things have to be in harmony. I, housing must fulfill its needs, but at the same time, um, we must consider those aspects of design that promote community. And beauty is one of the signs that all of these things are in harmony, I would say. So you don't think that there's anything inherently contrary to uh, a culture of beauty in the idea of mass production and capitalism. I remember when I was studying history of economic thought, coming across the ideas of a writer, E.F. Schumacher, who wrote the book Small is Beautiful. And there are some other writers in the, in the Catholic tradition, people like G.K. Chesterton, who have written about distributism, where you mm. have more uh, widely distributed production. You, it, it's not that, that capitalism or the own, private ownership of capital is the problem, but he says that there are just, uh, not the problem is not that there are too many capitalists, but that there are too few. And if we had more people uh, engaged in smaller scale production, 
that that might lend itself toward a more beautiful society? Um, well, it, it might, but the question is, how do you engineer that? Um, certainly, the, the best way to have that, even if it's true, and we, we might, might question that, is to have free entry into the market. Um, you can't regulate to push people into it. That, that will destroy it. But this, uh, this is a, a common reaction over the years. So the arts and crafts movement in England at the turn of the last century, headed by uh, the name that always comes to my mind, William Morris, um, they had the same idea. That was, wasn't Christian-based, I don't think. But they, they, tried, they believed that mass production was a, a huge problem and generating ugliness. Um, so I suppose my first reaction to that is, uh, well, first of all, that's fine for those who can afford to pay the small, for the small production uh, artifact. Um, but the choice is not between uh, mass-produced things and uh, lots of things that are produced on a smaller level, uh, because uh, the choice is between not having them at all for most people. Uh, they, they're simply not going to be able to afford what's produced in these small places. Um, now, maybe the economics of it will balance out and suddenly you would have lots and lots of things produced by many, many producers. Um, but the way to encourage that is free entry into the market, I would say. But the, I think that um, it ignores the fact that for in many ways the economy of scale allows for things which otherwise would not be affordable at all, ugly or beautiful, to be afforded by people. It is better to have um, something than not at all, if, if, it, if it's useful. And so, um, therefore, mass production is a good thing. Now, in the past, maybe you could say and even then, I wouldn't. You, you could look at this, and we'll go into this in more detail next week, I think. But maybe you could say that the mass-produced things are uglier than the small things. But as time goes on, there is no reason why mass-produced things need be ugly. The problem is not the mass production; it's not that you're producing a lot of them. It's that the we've lost the sense of how to design well. And with modern methods of reproduction and mass production. If something can be produced beautifully, it can be mass-produced beautifully. Um, and you can even build, in, build into the production processes, variety, changes. But um, I would say that, uh, that it's not intrinsic to the mass production. Mm. And for many things, um, an elegant frying pan, for example, um, people aren't worried too much about the design they don't want it to be so ugly that it's an eyesore but they're just worried about does it do its job um, and so I, I think we have to be aware of that now let's let's think also about art I get this a, a lot in people in painting saying that people should feel obliged to commission original art and they expect me as an artist to be in favor of this and, and I say well no I don't think they should I think I want people to have good art, and with good methods art. of re reproduction, um, if it's if you can buy a, a, a reproduction of a Velazquez that looks good, let's assume that the the reproduction is uh, so good that you can barely tell the difference between that and an original. Why not buy the reproduction? 
Um, that makes it available to many people. Um, so then the question is, well, what about production of new art? Uh, and the answer is that uh, we still need new art because um, every tradition has to reinvent itself. The art of Velazquez will speak to many people, but what will speak more will be somebody who's working in that tradition, but is actually applying those principles as they are um, going to speak to people today, and they will be subtly different. And so we need constant crea creativity. And then once those things are created, once that art is produced, certainly um, give the artist a good price for what he does. And if he can charge enough to sell it at a living wage, that, and because the demand is there and it's beautiful enough, good for him. Um, but I would have thought that the part of every business plan of artists would be reproduction. Mm -hmm. um, finding out where the, the balance lies between how many you produce and the price you set it at. Um, that will bring cheaper art, better art, and more revenue. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a sense in which we can specify the, the kind of governing principles of a culture of beauty, which is that it allows individuals to be free to choose what they produce, what kinds of relationships they enter into with people, either uh, economic relationships or social relationships, uh, but there's no way to predict in advance necessarily what will emerge out of that. So it's you, you wouldn't yes. have, uh, uh, you, you couldn't say, you know, my uh, ideal culture would look like this could you no i i couldn't anyway um is it could anyone christ there is there's is one person <laughs> or we say god can and this is the uh the thing about the natural orders of society actually that is interesting and again this is a whole field we can get into but there are natural associations which um are common to all people shall we say that are universal and they are the family and the nation, I would say, and the, the state. And then, after that, it's the church, it's, it's, the, it's the parish, or the, mm -hmm. it's the religious community. Um, but the, um, all of these other institutions, the, the nation and the family, should be in harmony with the, um, the end to which human, the, uh, humanity is directed which is actually the, the heavenly state, if you call it, the new Jerusalem, which, which is, to, is to be realized at a future date here, should we say, um, and um, cannot be imposed, and it involves the choice of all the individuals comprising the family and the nation to, to direct themselves towards that end. Mm. Um, and so uh, the... That is the authority, but it's an authority which is in love. And so therefore, we are given our freedom. And so we should conform to that. Um, now, the, the nation cannot impose God's law, if you like, um, in, in the same, you know, you can't, you can't have Christian Sharia law, for example, mm. um, which would then produce a, be a beautiful culture or a, because it, it wouldn't be free, it would be unjust in so many ways because... It, it, we have to be free to make the wrong choices as well as the right choices. Otherwise, there is no love. What about someone who would say that 
Sharia law is not the same. It's a different category than what we think of as law in the United States. It's more of a decision on the part of a religious community to uh, kind of agree on certain principles that it's just, you know, in the same way that you and I agree that we're, you know, we, part of our culture, we, you know, we wear clothing. And in Sharia law, they extend that to a few other things. They say that women will wear head coverings and, uh, and that there might be, there, I mean, there might be specific punishments for uh, specific transgressions, but that's not so different than what we have in, in Western culture. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at with this is that uh, if, if we say that no one can specify what the, what the beautiful culture looks like, maybe there is a kind of a wider diversity of, of potential cultures that can coexist, uh, not all under the same banner, but really kind of independently experimenting with different systems, different ways uh, different ways of living together. Yes, I, I think I think that's true, um, and uh, that is the. I would add one other yeah, thing, which yeah. is that in order for this system to be kind of palatable in my worldview, it has to allow for uh, voluntary entry and exit into the different communities. So if you have a community of Sharia law where they impose uh, a lot of restrictions that to Western sensibilities appear very oppressive, you would need to have the caveat of people are yes. allowed to leave and, and choose which community they belong to. Yeah, or, and same with a Benedictine monastery, for mm -hmm. example, that ultimately you take vows, but... Um, you restrict you, your freedom. You restrict your freedom, you take vows of obedience, uh, but, but it's a voluntary process. And, um, and provided that it doesn't, con it isn't contrary to the. You know, they're not taking the part that the state should naturally. Um, then, um, I would, I wouldn't worry. I mean, this is something. It depends. I don't know what sort of whether you're talking about something that exists within the United States, for example, or where they're, they're somehow unaffected by federal law. Mm. I don't know. I would like that. Right. Um, but. Uh, there's certainly room for voluntary uh, communities in which people willingly, to a degree, direct their freedom according to the common good as defined by that community in a way that many other people wouldn't. Um, and, but as you say, freedom of movement is, is very, very important. And there is, I wouldn't want a uniform culture across the world. I think that there are many expressions of a beautiful culture I think I would want Christianity across the world. I'd want to evangelize. Uh, I'd want my, I would love to see the whole world choosing to be Christian. But then you, you still wouldn't have a single nation or a, a uniform situation. You'd have many, many expressions of that culture um, existing at a national level, I suggest, but also within nations in the way that you describe. People voluntarily. Uh, apparently um, conforming to that but in the end it is um, they're free because they're free to opt out and so it, it can still be love can still be present in those situations mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, for people who want to see a little bit more about what you are talking about when you describe maybe the alternatives to Christian culture the, the, what is the product of a culture that rejects this kind of freedom, they can go to the Way of Beauty blog, 
uh, where they'll see some, I think, pretty stark examples of, of how uh, architecture, for example, can be influenced by the, the underlying culture to pretty depressing results. Uh, and there's also a great set of images relating to this analogy of uh, kind of the, the subatomic particles uh, and, and how when we look at specific particles, we, might, we can't really see the whole, but when we zoom out, then there are laws that start to kick in that lead to this uh, emergent pattern of beauty. Uh, so yeah, again, just I would direct people to the blog to see a little bit more about uh, what we're talking about. But if you uh, have any closing comments, uh, what would you what would you want to, to people to get out of this podcast? Well, uh, first of all, just to say yes that that um, as well as the images that you described, uh, you just referred to, and it's a, it's the blog associated on the podcast page. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, the one that introduces the podcast has um, a slightly longer essay than I normally would give because I'm relating to these visual images. Um, and so certainly have a look at that podcast page on the Way of Beauty blog. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think that the, the great point that um, excites me, shall we say, that, that excited me when I discovered this, is that there is no conflict between order and harmony and uh, beauty at the, the, the higher level and personal freedom and individual free will. Um, now, I, I, this might just be worth just for a couple of minutes sort of talking about because the, the pattern of free will mathematically is random. It, 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 you, you wonder how you can allow people to be like that and then have something that is ordered and harmonious. Now, why do I stress order? Well, because um, the very word uh, for, the, for the cosmos, uh, the Greek word cosmos means both order, it means cosmos, in the, the creation, if you like, and it means beauty. We get the word cosmetic from it. And the underlying assumption is that beauty is a reflection of order something that, that is ordered and harmonious and patterned and the very strong implication is that at some level it can be mathematically described um, and certainly when we look at the cosmos we can and we'll get into I do a course on the mathematics of beauty based upon the cosmos the and you can see that cosmic beauty in the works of man and in, in society as a whole but the point about this is that none of this is in conflict with individual and personal dignity, the dignity of the human person and free will and freedom, which is informed. That, so this is freedom properly understood, which is informed by a capacity, capacity to love and to do what is good and what is best. And that means that, we, that, that the highest freedom is freely choosing to do what is right and good and true and beautiful at a personal level. Mm -hmm. And then if we, and that means we have to step back and let people do it, and then it will emerge. Uh, and you will, what you will see uh, over time, man's destiny is the new Jerusalem. Uh, that's, what, that's what it's drawing us toward. It's the future calling us towards it rather than the past driving us forward, so to speak. 
it's hard to imagine how it will all come together, but I think that's part of the beauty of that that uh, that mystery and that expectation that we can all look forward to, uh, and and the idea of there being distinct nations and distinct cultures that are all playing some role, and uh, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, depending on how much freedom they allow and how well they set up the rules of the game to prevent people from encroaching on the freedom of other people. And I guess that's kind of the, the political problem par excellence, is how do, you, how do you have this order without having it turn into oppression? Uh, and how do you give freedom without giving people this just kind of blank blanket license to do whatever they want, even when, uh, when it has side effects that end up infringing on the freedom of other people. Yes, and I'm going to end on a political note, which may end up putting everybody off here. But, but as a, I'm British, so I'm from Europe, and it's one. I, I think that I see that the, the best sort of manifestation of some of people trying to introduce that balance in the American system, this balance between the federal government, the autonomy to a large of what ought to be greater, I think, of the states. Um, and this, this, the subsidiarity that exists within the American system, whereas the European experiment does not have that, um, does not exist in the same way, um, and is very much more centrally controlled, um, the, the, the EU. Um, and uh, it's, it's not just a European equivalent of the United States, it's, it's something very different. Um, and. That's one of the reasons why I think there's great hope in the U.S. For all that the you know that it's not perfect. I think that some, I, I agree with what you just described. I think that is something that we need to strive towards. Um, I haven't got all the answers, but I, I see something here that will allow that to come forward. I think. But again, just to bring it full circle, you started off talking about politics being uh, secondary to the cultural attitudes that people have. And it seems like the United States, also as a driver of culture, is still moving pretty quickly in the in the direction of you know using that freedom more as you know the license to to create you know whether music or film that that flies directly against some of the the values we've been talking about. But uh, I guess it all it all just begins uh, begins at home, and for us it begins right here uh, in the courtyard and. In the, <laughs> Comment. Yes, and and I'm not as pessimistic as many. I I, I agree with what what you say. There's there's many things that happen that I'm not fond of, uh, but there is still the freedom. To, I I can choose to do something different if I want to at the moment, um, and that's where it begins. It begins, as you say, it begins here in the courtyard, uh, and for you listener, it, you know, it begins wherever you are now. We can choose to do something different. Um, and I'm always optimistic that uh, the good will out. All right. Well, you've heard it straight from uh, the mouth of David Clayton. It's more Vespers and less rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> even though that might be a decidedly uncool thing to say, he's, he's sticking to his guns. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org And if you want to buy the book, go to Amazon.com.